our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're going to embark on a journey to unlock the secrets of blue zones and how to discover a holistic approach in healthcare, bridging lifestyle medicine and social determinants of health, where we can truly transform the lives and well-beings of the of those that we serve. In this week's episode, we're going to delve into the power of community, purpose, nutrition, and daily habits that can reshape our health narratives. And I hope you're ready to be inspired. Our guest this week is Dr. Dexter Sherney. Uh, Dr. Sherney is president of the Blue Zones Wellbeing Institute. He's responsible for creating innovative health and well-being solutions that have broad impact. Um, the Institute is a living lab to create, study, and codify best practice, including a whole-person approach to care that can be replicated across regions and communities, including those of greatest need. And the evidence and solutions that are being created uh, that he's a part of are, are being used to advance relevant local, state, and federal policies. Um, Dr. Sherney's a frequent global speaker on health and well-being. It is an absolute pleasure to bring him to you this week. And if you want to learn more about his work, definitely look into the Blue Zones Institute. Uh, also, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine um, is another great organization. And lifestyle medicine and value-based care truly together can help us unlock wellness by bringing innovation through social determinants of health and creating a blueprint that we can apply from lessons learned in the Blue Zones to make the American healthcare system better. So thanks for joining us this week in the Race to Value. And now let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Dexter Sherney. Dr. Sherney, welcome to the Race to Value, my friend. It is so great to be with you again, and I'm really excited about our conversation today. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well, Eric. This should be great. Dr. Sherney is one of the foremost experts on health and well-being. You know, I feel like we have to begin our conversation on somewhat of a somber note. I mean, it's alarming to see how life expectancy is declining in our country. You know, after peaking in 2014, U.S. life expectancy has declined each subsequent year, trending far worse than peer countries. And in a quarter of U.S. counties, working-age Americans are dying at the highest rates in 40 years, reversing decades of progress. And we saw just last week 
The Washington Post published an unsparing article that packaged a year of investigative reporting into a thorough accounting of why this is happening. And, you know, with this rapid decline and while deaths from firearms and opioids play a role, you know, chronic diseases remain our nation's greatest killer. I mean, it's erasing more than double the years of life as all overdoses, homicides, suicides, and car accidents combined. And, you know, these drivers of this trend are just too numerous to list, but experts suggest that targeting, you know, the causes of the causes, namely social factors, as the death rate gap between the rich and the poor has grown almost 15 times faster than the income gap since 1980. I mean, this is something we have to address as a country and it's a real sombering reminder of our responsibilities as leaders in healthcare and you know this massive death toll of chronic disease in our country it's an indictment of the care Americans receive but we have to figure out how to provide resources and access to those especially in underserved and uh, marginalized communities so you know Dr. Sherney I wanted to ask you if you could provide your perspective on this scourge of chronic disease in our country and how it's contributing to Americans living sh much shorter lives. I mean, how do we create a solution to the problem in the healthcare setting where we can get all the health systems to play a key role in increasing access to preventative care while convening community resources to address these systemic social issues like poverty and racism? What a great way to start this conversation, because you've really touched on perhaps the biggest challenge that we have. There's good news and there's bad news. The good news, we certainly will talk more about this as we go through the, the course of our conversation. The good news is that we actually have some answers to this. The bad news is that we haven't put in place the right policies that allow us to use the, the tools that we have in our toolbox to actually fix the problem. And when I say policies, I don't just mean, you know, social policies, but I'm also talking about reimbursement policies as well. But we really know a lot about what works. You know, I, I spend a lot of my time with Blue Zones. And, you know, to plug, to plug Blue Zones, there's a great uh, Netflix documentary on this uh, miniseries. But uh, if you look at those Blue Zones around the world, people are living healthy and they're living long. They're, you know, they have longevity. They're living to be well into their hundreds. And they don't suffer from these issues uh, that we suffer with. Their rates of heart disease, these chronic conditions, type 2 diabetes, their rates of Alzheimer's disease are far lower than ours, and they have a 10 times X chance of living to be 100 than we do. And yet, in most of these communities, all these communities actually, they spend far less than we do in terms of healthcare. And these are diverse communities, so it's not just one group. Uh, so I wanna you know, sort of touch on the, well, is it genetics that's driving this? And I would say with a resounding no, it's not genetics, it's how they live. It's the, the surroundings, their environment, how they interact with each other. And uh, so we know, and, and Blue Zones has, been, has spent decades looking at this data and studying these communities. So we know it works, but we don't have the policies for the most part to uh, put this in place in, in the United States. And that's what's really leading to, to, to what we're seeing. And just before I, I pause for a second, I would also say, you mentioned the suicides and, and the youth, the deaths around youth and guns and things like that. 
these have also been labeled as uh, deaths of despair. So it, it touches back on people being lonely and feeling like they're not connected to friends and family and society in general. I, I think that there's good news and bad news. And so we really need to think about how do we facilitate the science that we already know exists around some of these issues. Well, Dr. Sherney, you mentioned the blue zones in your discussion. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, in the Netflix uh, docuseries was incredible, and it highlights a, a lot of important things that you discussed, and including plant-based diet and community. I mean, these blue zones, I mean, it's fascinating that we have regions of the world where people are known to live longer and healthier lives, and, you know, they have much uh, greater chance to live to 100. And there's been tons of insights from researchers and health enthusiasts about what really is happening there in these regions. I mean, these regions include Caria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, Italy, Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Loma Linda, California. And researchers have like reverse engineered longevity to find that the common denominators that are found in these blue zones, you know, they are places where people have a diet rich in plant-based foods, regular physical activity, strong social connections, community support, and also a sense of purpose or meaning in life. And, you know, given these lifestyle factors that contribute to remarkable longevity and well-being of people in these blue zones, you know, it seems like we have to find a way to replicate them in our uniquely American society, which is, you know, often limited by, you know, modern fast-paced living and processed foods and social structures that deprioritize these elements of health and well-being. And the opportunity for health equity also is huge. I mean, given the, you know, the evidence that we see that blacks living in U.S. blue zones outperform whites on nationally recognized measures of quality of life. So, you know, Dr. Sherney, I wanted to ask you, you know, how can the lessons and insights from blue zones be applied to promote longevity and well-being in regions that are not blue zones? And are there examples, you know, that you've seen where governments, healthcare systems, employers, and communities can collaborate to reinvigorate living environments and alignment with blue zone principles? Oh, absolutely. There are 75 plus blue zone projects in the United States. And uh, you will see the transformations that are taking place in those communities doing just what you mentioned in terms of reverse engineering what the researchers had learned from these original blue zones. There's also uh, a new blue zones, uh, Singapore, and they are putting together you know, policies and things like that. Well, actually, they've already done it. They put together the policies and things that have really driven uh, their health and well-being and longevity. So it is possible to do. Uh, we're not Singapore. I'm not saying that we should be, uh, but that is one example. But even these uh, blue zones within the United States, these these 75, we're seeing dramatic changes uh, in what's happening in these communities. And many of these are are what would be considered the vulnerable populations, you know, uh, lower socioeconomic minority communities. And we're seeing real progress there too. So it is it is happening. What I will say though is that there are healthcare organizations involved in these transformations, but healthcare organizations and systems are not the major player. When you really think about you know changing environments and things like that, you have to bring other people to the table to work alongside healthcare systems. And so it's really forming these collaborations and these partnerships. Uh, that are so essential. We tend to work in silos. 
you know, you have one organization doing its thing, you'll have another organization doing its thing, and we seldom coordinate those kinds of efforts or really understand what each other is trying to do. And that's that's a miss. And so what we find is that if you can get that collaboration to happen, you can actually start to move the needle. Well, Dr. Sherney, I saw you speak at the ACLM conference a, a year ago, and you really made this important connection uh, between stress-induced inflammation and chronic disease. And in an idealized situation, you know, when a person's glowing from overwhelming sense of love, you know, that triggers a chemical release of dopamine, you know, pleasure or oxytocin, which is bonding to someone that you love or vasopressin, that chemical that brings balance to the body and even growth hormone, which uh, helps make you healthy. And you know, when someone's experiencing the fear and stress that we often see in our society, you know, the body chemistry is just, it's so different. You know, if you're afraid, you're releasing stress hormones and inflammatory agents that affect the immune system. I mean, chemicals like cortisone and nor norepinephrine and cytokines and this chronic burden of stress leads to allostatic load, which refers to that cumulative physiological wear and tear of the body that occurs in response to chronic stressors. And it encompasses the various physiological responses that help the body maintain stability and adapt to stress, including hormonal, immune, and cardiovascular systems. And, you know, I learned that term allostatic load from you. And I understand, you know, now after I've read a little bit about it, that, you know, when it becomes excessive or prolonged, you know, it can have a significant impact on inflammation and overall health. And, you know, that chronic stress causes hypertension, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and it's independent of your diet or whether you exercise. And there's that direct connection between the allostatic load and inflammation, which causes chronic disease. And it's been talked a lot lately and a lot of the research and health equity, you know, since underserved populations are under so much stress in our society. So I wanted to see if you could elaborate on this connection you know, between allostatic load, which is that cumulative burden of chronic stress and life events and inflammatory conditions. How are marginalized and minoritized groups disproportionately impacted and experience worse public health outcomes because of this? Yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. And I'm glad you were able to hear that lecture and remember that. Yeah, where to start? There was a conference that was held in 2019, I believe it was, at UPMC. It was on lifestyle, and they brought all of the uh, experts in lifestyle medicine together. A uh, good colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Mike Parkinson, did this uh, with the help of the Ardmore Institute. And it was a three-day convening, and they brought all the experts, experts in nutrition, experts in sleep, experts in stress, uh, all the facets of, of lifestyle medicine and each time on you know how they would treat individuals and what the the focus was and what they were trying to uh, alleviate within those individuals and to jump to the the conclusion all of those avenues had a common path and the common path was inflammation if you don't get enough sleep that's a stressor to the body it shrinks your telomeres but the bottom line that stress has an effect on your body. Eat the wrong diet, that's a stressor to your body. Your body's trying to compensate for that. And that becomes something that also causes uh, inflammation. And so right down the line, you know, stress is its own stressor. Um, you see this. And so 
that was the common denominator that all of these lifestyle medicine experts in their own fields came up with. And now you you talk about the work of Arlene Geronimus and, and uh, others when they're talking about weathering and allostatic load, as you mentioned, the common pathway there is also this chronic inflammation, the stress that this has on the body. And so when you talk about these communities, oftentimes they are suffering from the social determinants, the discrimination, the chronic stress, you know, not having money, access to food, living in noisy places, living in places where they're, they fear being shot. And so you have that chronic stress. And then you also put on top of that, the stress of not being able to sleep, having to work third shifts, for example, or more than one job. You put on top of that not having access to food because they live in a food desert, et cetera, et cetera. And you really compound the problem. So the good thing about understanding that stress is the common pathway, uh, or chronic stress is the, the common pathway, I should say, is that lifestyle medicine actually reduces the stress when you do attend to those things that I just mentioned on the lifestyle medicine path. And, and while we can work in communities to alleviate some of those weathering allostatic causes of stress uh, to the extent possible, uh, and we should and we are, we can also work on the lifestyle things on an individual basis. And so in some ways, good lifestyle medicine practices can help individuals withstand those other kinds of stressors uh, in their lives they may not have as much control over. So that's that's what we see happening in some of these communities. And it's really exciting when you start to think about this. And it, it also is exciting for the patient because it starts to empower them to be able to do some of these things, learn how to reduce that stress by doing some of the things that we just we just mentioned. Dr. Sherney, I, I, I wanted to engage you more on racial and ethnic minority communities and you know how they're disproportionately affected by the disparities in disease. We have such a prevalence of chronic disease, you know, such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And you know, our listeners are really keyed into that because they're leaders in lifestyle medicine, value-based care. And, you know, as a country, you know, we have to do something about this. It's not, it's not just a healthcare issue. I mean, this is you know, as you discussed earlier, it's resulting in substantial morbidity, mortality, and on top of that, disability and overall costs in our country. And, you know, we have over half of all Medicare beneficiaries that are treated for five or more chronic conditions, which account for over 75% of the spending. So if we look at these um, minoritized communities, I mean, the statistics are, are alarming. You know, we, we see, for example, like Native American adults are twice as likely to be diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, Black and Hispanic adults are also incre have an increased risk of diabetes, uh, 60 or 70% respectively. You know, Hispanic adults diagnosed with diabetes are twice as likely to develop end-stage renal disease. Blacks with diabetes are four times more likely to have an am amputation. Uh, black women are twice as likely to suffer from stroke. And Black and Hispanic rates of hypertension uh, are 79 and 65% respectively compared to whites, which is around 60%. And, you know, we see dramatic differences in life expectancy by race. I mean, a six to seven year gap between uh, blacks and whites on average. And and then you look at the uh, maternal mortality rates for black women, you know, it's 
43 per 100,000. And, and it demonstrates a pregnancy-related death risk that's three to four times greater than that of white women. And African-American women also have the highest prevalence of, of obesity. You know, four out of five African-American women are overweight or obese. You know, overall, non-Hispanic blacks are 1.3 times more likely to be obese compared to non-Hispanic whites. I mean, there's a lot there in terms of the data, and I, I think I just barely scratched the surface. But, you know, I, I wanted to see if you could speak more at length about the prevalence and severity of chronic diseases in populations of color. I mean, what factors are contributing to this, you know, disproportionately high rate of chronic disease and racial and ethnic minority communities in the U.S.? And, you know, how do we go about in this move to value-based care and lifestyle medicine to, to really address these disparities. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, all the reasons we, we sort of touched on a few seconds ago in terms of lifestyle as well as environment, the societal factors, discrimination, racism, they're all playing a role to this chronic inflammation. And the chronic inflammation over time causes disease in the human body. That's just the way the body responds. And you mentioned that the comorbidities are there. All those comorbidities usually run in, in tandem. Uh, so you're likely, you, you know, you'll have a, a person that becomes hypertensive down the road. They'll get, you know, congestive heart failure. They'll get obesity. They'll have type 2 diabetes then the amputations and the things like that follow the loss of sight. And so all of these things kind of go together. But if you eliminate that chronic source of, of inflammation, these things tend to go away. And that's the good thing about lifestyle medicine is that when you treat the, the, the root cause, not only the root cause of what you might initially be being, are trying to treat, such as the hypertension gets better, but all of those comorbid conditions also get better. Uh, together as well, because they're all related to the same root cause. Uh, and that's the power of this. And it's also the power of when you change environments as well, uh, that you have this effect. Uh, I want to make sure that the listeners understand that this is not an issue of genes. There is probably a, a very small percentage of some of the disparities that you're talking about that might have a genetic uh, focus. But we know from studies on identical twins that if you separate them early, in life, identical twins, same DNA, you separate them early in life and put them in different environments, you get different health outcomes. Uh, rates of obesity, rates of cancer, rates of these chronic diseases are different based on where these individuals are placed uh, later in life. And we call that epigenetics, which is uh, the expression of your genes, how your genes are expressed uh, in terms of disease in this case. And so we know that that environment, the surroundings, which you bathe your genes with, either positive or negative kinds of things, will impact uh, the expression of those genes. So that's one thing we want to talk about. But what I, what I would say is that one other thing I just want to point out is that we've known for a long time that individuals that are of a lower social economic status also have poor health outcomes. It doesn't matter regardless of race. You mentioned maternal mortality. We also know though for Blacks, Black women that have a college degree actually have higher rates of maternal mortality than white women without a high school education. 
And in every category of these disparities, Blacks tend to do worse uh, than whites at every level of income and every level of education. So it doesn't completely solve the problem. And that's some of the new insights uh, that we've learned now is that it's not, you're not just going to fix the problem by income alone. We also know there was a study done of a cohort from Yale graduates from the 1970s and they followed them through time and they had a three times higher rate of premature mortality uh, among those uh, black Yale graduates versus the white Yale graduates. And yet these were people that had very good education. They were all graduates of Yale. Um, they had good jobs, they had good health care, and uh, they had access to care as well. And yet their uh, mortality rates were, were three times higher in terms of premature mortality. So we know that the social determinants are important, uh, but we know that that's not the whole story. And there is something else going on here. And I think this is what you, you want me to, to sort of say more about. And that is this whole idea of discrimination and racism uh, that's there. And now I, I will say that the racism and discrimination is not intentional for the most part, but nevertheless, it's existing uh, and it has an impact. And it's, it's borne out in this weathering, uh, among other things that we've just discussed uh, as well. We live in a country where we're too quick to blame the victim. And we see a patient, uh, perhaps from one of these communities, and we say, you know, they're not eating right. They're not doing this right. Uh, I tell them something and they don't do it. They don't follow through with it. And we don't take into consideration that there could be a lack of trust for various reasons. Uh, we don't take into consideration the environment that they're actually living in. And I know we're getting a little better at that, but give I'll give you one example. And they've, they've played this out several times in terms of uh, discrimination. And it's clear that it's not the individual's fault. Uh, and that's why I like this particular example. And again, they've played this out at various universities over time. And the experiment is they will take a job application and they will have the same resume, same education, same GPAs, same experience. And they will submit it to an HR hiring group. And all they do is they change the name. So they'll change it from a black sounding name to a white sounding name and vice versa. And if it has a white sounding name, there's a 40% greater chance that the person will be called for an interview than if it's a black sounding name. So this is hiring. And so it's nothing on the person's part. They didn't have to speak a word. They didn't show up. They don't even have a picture of the person. All they have is the name. And why is there a 40% difference? And the reason this is important is because, again, blaming the victim is can, can be so uh, dangerous. But why is this is important? This is important is because certain jobs are not as readily available. And if you don't have a good job, then where you live changes where you live. And where you live changes where you're going to go to school and the education that you get. And so it has immediate impact. It has longer impact. And what, where you go to school might also determine where you get to go to school on the next round, such as a, a Harvard or a Yale. And of course, people make relationships and they network and that helps them get jobs. 
And if you have none of this, because you've been denied a job way back when, or someone in your family, then you're just set up to have this, this chronic stress. And that's just one, that's just one uh, example. And there are many of those examples. They've done this with mortgage applications, et cetera, et cetera. And with the mortgage applications, it turns out that people are charged higher interest rates. Even if they get the loan, they're charged higher interest rates, which over time is a lot of money that could have been used in investing in stocks and that kind of thing. So the cumulative opportunity for wealth in those communities and among certain people is different. And so again, we're too quick to, to blame the victim, not only in terms of why haven't, why haven't they achieved as much in life, but also when it comes to why aren't they taking better care of themselves in terms of health. So I wanted to make sure that that's I, you know, I, I do, and I appreciate your comments on the impact of racism. I mean, this is a much bigger uh, problem to your point. You know, yes, it's, you know, it's related to social determinants of health, but then, you know, it also includes economics and social policies and politics and, of course, racism. Uh, but there is one thing that, you know, I, as I think about, you know, going to your earlier point about, you know, where the health systems uh, can make a difference. And, you know, that's in lifestyle medicine. I mean, if, if we can truly, you know, unleash the power of that modality, you know, it can reverse the negative impacts of uh, SDOH and, you know, lifestyle factors. I mean, things that, you know, you mentioned earlier, like diet and stress management and sleep and exercise. I mean, they play such a significant role in improving clinical outcomes for individuals, you know, with autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions that are simultaneously focused on SDOH and lifestyle medicine, you know, offers this overarching strategy for healthcare that addresses the root causes of these most prevalent and highest cost illnesses, which a lot of our listeners are obviously thinking about how to bend the curve there. And, you know, unfortunately, it just seems all too often the health industry policies, you know, they, you know, fail to appreciate the benefit of preemptively focusing on lifestyle factors as a proven way to prevent disease. I mean, we see that in the reimbursement model and, you know, and also, you know, many medical students and physicians uh, don't even receive adequate training in the basics of lifestyle medicine, let alone social determinants of health. And, you know, we have to think about lifestyle medicine as a necessary intervention to support positive behavior change in our communities and encourage patients to participate in their own health. And we also have to have this reimagined healthcare system, it seems, that can really consider the patient's SDOH environment, you know, such as, you know, food insecurity, lack of education, socioeconomic status, and all of that. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Sherney, you know, could you discuss like what role value-based care can play in redesigning our system to focus on health and healthcare at every level, you know, the inter, uh, interpersonal, intrapersonal, institutional, community, systemic? I mean, is, is there something there where, you know, we can actually address SDOH and bring scale to lifestyle medicine within the traditional healthcare environment? There, there is. So... Where can li lifestyle medicine and, and, and health systems play a role? I think where it starts is with uh, changing the rules of the game in terms of the policies. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, we talk about value-based care, and I often ask the question, value for whom? Uh, if you go to almost any conference uh, where you have providers uh, talking about value-based care, the conversation is about how can they earn more money in a value-based system? 
none of the, the, the conversation is really about how do we bring less costs uh, to the payers, uh, but how do we make more? And I, and I reason that that resonates so much with me is I often spend my time with employers, as you know, from my background, and employers aren't really embracing value-based care because they don't really see much value there. Again, if you look at, at uh, health plans, uh, many of them are, 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 are moving away from commercial, covering commercial lives to more CMS because the value-based situation there is, is much more uh, lucrative uh, for them to make money in that system. If you look at uh, HEDIS measures, for example, uh, out of the 95 HEDIS metrics, there's not a single one that gives a physician or a health system credit for reversing disease. And if you think about the value that a physician or a health system can bring to a patient or to a payer, it would be to eliminate diseases, not just manage the disease, but eliminate the disease. Most of the HEDIS is around, well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the HEDIS is around, you know, what medications you have and how many medications and are they adherent to the medications and you get credit for that. But if you eliminate the disease and you actually reduce the number of medications that that person needs, because quite frankly, if you're healthy, you don't need as many medications, right? That's logical. Then you don't get credit for that. And again, that's where the biggest value is. So I would say that you really need to start making changes to those quality metrics. And this is how health plans make money. And then physicians, they get credit for the, you know, hitting all the metrics for, for HEDIS and change some of those that a lifestyle medicine physician would actually be able to also receive credit for bringing even a higher level of value uh, to the table uh, than what's out there now. Uh, because right now, if you're really practicing lifestyle medicine, and you eliminate or reduce disease, you're actually will be paid less because the way the algorithms are set up and the way the payments are set up, the more diseases a person has, the more money goes to the system. And so if you cut the diseases in half, you're gonna cut your money in half and that's not a good way to, to stay in business. So there's really not that incentive to do true lifestyle medicine uh, in that sense. And so that those are some of the things that I and others are trying to work on changing because once you change that and people can get credit and receive incentives for reducing disease, eliminating medications, and really causing savings, not only benefiting the patient, obviously, uh, by not having those diseases, but also helping the system overall so that our costs don't continue to increase by 7 to 10% year over year. Well, it really does come down to reimbursement and, you know, we, we have to figure that out. You know, I, I, I uh, had the chance to interview uh, Dean Ornish uh, on our podcast a couple of years ago, and you know he talked about the intensive cardiac rehabilitation program that was able to get Medicare reimbursement. Uh, it was it's basically known as the Ornish reversal program uh, to reverse heart disease, and you know there's so much you know that does coincide with you know good healthy eating in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, either reversing chronic disease or preventing chronic disease. And, you know, I'm reminded of that ancient Ayurvedic proverb, you know, when diet is wrong, medicine is of no use. When diet is correct, medicine is of no need. And, you know, this food is medicine. Um, 
uh, concept, it makes so much sense. And, you know, it just, it, it, it it's just mind boggling the, the, to realize that we just can't quite figure out how to align it with uh, the, the American healthcare system at present. But, but if you do look at like obesity, you know, in our society, you know, uh, it's just such a, a, you know, oxymoronic challenge. And, you know, like what I mean by that, you know, it's difficult and expensive to treat, you know, when we've seen stats that, oh, Obese patients are 27% more expensive than normal weight patients, yet it's so straightforwardly simple and inexpensive to prevent, you know, with good lifestyle choices. And then you look at the cumulative, you know, economics of obesity, you know, on our society, you know, direct medical costs are $147 billion and uh, medical expenditures, you join that with lost productivity, you know, that's another 300 plus billion. And then you look at all the different chronic diseases, you know, 60% of Americans are suffering from at least one chronic disease that's caused by diet. And you start adding that up, you know, diabetes, you know, 300 plus billion hypertension, 130 billion heart disease, 200 billion. I mean, it's just a catastrophic crisis of both health and economics, and we can't quite seem to get the policies to to kind of conform to the thinking that of what needs to be done to really go upstream and align incentives and you know do the right things. And you know, uh, we had also on the podcast uh, previously Jaywan Rue, the CEO of Geisinger, and you know he talked about their food as medicine strategy, and they have that. Uh, fresh food pharmacy and they offer prescriptions for no cost nutritious food for uh, food insecure patients with diabetes. And it seems like we need more initiatives like that. We have to implement those. And especially, you know, we can't wait on value-based care to reach a critical mass. I mean, we have to, you know, start thinking about, you know, how do we do this now? So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Sherney, you know, just in what ways do you think we can better, you know, encourage individuals to make these healthier food choices and embrace lifestyle changes and, you know, how do these health systems support these efforts without a critical mass and value-based payment? You have to make sure that the food tastes good. <laughs> I'm going to start with the obvious. People will eat food that they like and they will not eat food that they don't like. And I think where we miss the boat on some of this is that we try to feed people food that's healthy but we, we sort of missed the boat on how well it tastes. And I, I've done this now for over a decade. And I can tell you that, well, I'll give you an example. When I was at Vanderbilt University and I did a lifestyle program there, one of the ladies that completed the program, she developed a, a vegan chili. And her name was Marianne. She, she, I have her permission to talk about her. But Marianne had a chili, a vegan chili. And we entered into the Vanderbilt annual chili cook-off. And the first year we entered it, she entered it, uh, she called it a vegan chili, and it didn't even rate. The next year, she entered the same recipe, but she called it Marianne's chili, and she won first place. It was a vegan chili. And the next two years, she also entered it, and she won as well. So she won uh, because it tastes good, and people were, were so surprised that this was a healthy chili. Uh, and then there was no meat in it and they were just flabbergasted. But had we called it, you know, vegan chili like we did the first year, nobody wanted it. They, you know, they just assumed that it didn't taste good. And so there are some psychological things we have to do. There's some taste things we have to do. Obviously, if it didn't taste good, it wouldn't have won. But, you know, those are the things and people will will wait in line to eat some of these things, even though they're healthy. 
if you approach them the right way and they're truly delicious. And so that's part of the battle is that you have to get people to eat it. The other part is that you have to find a way to pay for it. And so people will frown, you know, when you talk about food as medicine, it's because, you know, I can't pay for somebody's food for the rest of their lives. And what I say to that is, well, at least let's pay for it during the time that you're using it as medicine. And so, you know, food as medicine is a large spectrum. It can be from just providing people with produce, et cetera, et cetera. But um, when I use the term food as medicine in terms of health plans and others paying for it, you truly use it as medicine. And the reason this is so important is because you can then start to think about it in terms of benefit design the same way that you would a new drug that comes to market. And you place a drug on a formulary, you put it in a tier. Uh, there's a copay deductible associated with that drug, but it, the drug is only prescribed and has an indication for a certain kind of condition. And so if you have a certain kind of dietary pattern or food pattern, uh, say for hypertension, uh, then you would prescribe that food for the person that has hypertension for as long as they have hypertension. When the hypertension goes away, then you no longer have to prescribe the medication. Uh, just like you wouldn't continue to prescribe medication, uh, traditional medication for a patient that no longer has the disease either. And if you think about the money that you spend on the food compared to some of these medications, it's a pretty good value. Because you think about it, most of these foods that we're talking about not only would treat the primary condition that you're trying to treat, whether it's you know type 2 diabetes or, or hypertension, what have you, but they also have secondary benefits because we know most of these diets are high in fiber, they're anti-inflammatory, and again, the nidus of all of this is inflammation. So you're also helping the person, say you're treating hypercholesterolemia, you're also helping the person with their hypertension. You're also helping the person with their type 2 diabetes. You're also decreasing their risk of colon cancer because it's high in fiber. So you get all of these beneficial side effects of food that you wouldn't get if you only prescribe one medication for a, for a single condition. The other thing is we already talked about social determinants and food insecurity. So by giving the person this food as a medicine, you're also uh, helping them with their food insecurity. And if you talk about adverse drug effects, there are really few adverse drug effects unless somebody's allergic to the food that you're trying to give them versus medications that have a long list of adverse drug effects. Usually, if you watch the commercials on TV, you'll see all the adverse drug effects that people are talking about. So the benefits are there. And again, if, if you can make the food taste good, people will actually use it. And again, if you think about the use and uptake of drugs, most chronic conditions, uh, the use of drugs actually uh, is, is about 50%. Only about 50% of the people are still on those medications after about 12 months. Those are just the ones that fulfill the prescription the first time. So about 25% don't even fill it the first time. So that's why if we can put these things in place and look at it as a benefit design, use it truly as food as medicine to begin with, uh, I think that's a good place to start. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Sherney. You mentioned it briefly earlier, but you know, employers and the role that they uh, play in this, and you know, understandably, you know, in value-based care, you know, Medicare and Medicaid often get a lot of attention, but 
you know, employers collectively, you know, pick up the biggest portion of the healthcare tab and non-retirees are overwhelmingly, you know, getting their insurance uh, through the workplace, uh, you know, ERISA, which regulates both health and retirement plans. It requires employers to act in their employees' interest in providing benefits. And, you know, we've seen employers uh, that are very good at doing this with retirement plans, but they're seriously very bad at doing it with health plans. And, you know, these plans for the most part, you know, they're not promoting well-being and health. I mean, we've seen large employers, you know, spending on average, you know, like 10 plus million a year on well-being programs that are largely ineffective. They're providing exercise incentives, nutritional counseling, stress reduction apps, meditation classes, employee assistant uh, programs, the list goes on and on. But you, we still see workers that are stressed out, you know, the burnout rates are increasing. I mean, we hear about it all the time in healthcare right now. I mean, it's a big issue. And, you know, these these programs just aren't doing well. And, you know, when stress and poor lifestyle factors in, you know, to everything, you know, to your, you know, what we've been talking about earlier, I mean, it leads to chronic disease. And, you know, these employers just aren't positioned to support their employees. And, you know, there was a recent survey I was looking at, and they surveyed over a thousand U.S. workers, and sixty percent say their leaders are unprepared to support them, and you know, with a serious uh, illness or you know, chronic medical condition. And you had written a book a few years ago, uh, integrating wellness into your disease management programs, which was a, a how-to guide for employers that wish to innovate their approach to chronic condition management. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Sherney, if you could elaborate on, you know, why we need more innovative approaches to chronic condition management in the workplace and, you know, how employers can better support their employees with chronic health conditions. And, you know, what are some of the practical strategies or recommendations that you might make to to them to improve their approach to integrate wellness and uh, lifestyle medicine into their disease management programs? Yeah, that's a great point. About half of Americans receive their health care through an employer. So it's a great place to start. And the incentives there are more pure. Employers want to make sure that their employees are healthy, not just because of the health care costs, but also because of productivity. People that are not uh, feeling well just don't perform as well day to day. They don't show up in the same way. Uh, and those are costs that you cannot offshore, so to speak. So they do have a reason for this. And, and we also see that it, it, it actually flows to the bottom line. A friend of mine, Dr. Ray Fabius, has done some studies on this and others that show that organizations that do pay attention to this actually perform better overall in terms of financial performance uh, than those that don't. So there is there is a, a a reason for employers to do this beyond just the obvious direct uh, healthcare costs. What I would say is that again, it goes back to some of the policies. The nice thing about large self-funded employers is that they can write their own benefit design. And so some of the things that I was just talking about in terms of food as medicine, they can actually pull the trigger on that if they desire to do so. Um, the problem is oftentimes they look at best practice and no one else is doing it. So they say, well, no one else is doing it. So it must not be best practice. Somebody has to be the leader. 
uh, to, to, to at least pilot and experiment with some of these things. So that would challenge my large employer benefit design folks to think about, you know, doing some pilots to get going and actually see what can what's possible. The other thing is, you know, if you think about EAP, you mentioned stress and EAP, employer assistance programs, for the most part, we are running in the single digits in terms of uh, employees taking, you know, or, or, or participating in those programs. And yet we know that stress is just off, you know, off the charts. And so why is that? Well, there are probably a lot of different reasons, but the way that a policy could help is that you try to destigmatize it. And one of the ways you do that is to make visiting to an EAP provider uh, put it in the same category as uh, visiting your primary care for an annual checkup. And that will will sort of push people into the system, those that need it for sure, uh, but it will push people into the system and it gets rid of the stigma. My employer says I need a, a, a well-being checkup once a year, just like I need a physical checkup with my physician. And the reason is not because I'm crazy. The reason is because life happens to everybody, and it could be that my dog died yesterday, or I had a fight with my neighbor over the fence, or my wife and I got into it, or my child is doing this or that, but life happens, and we all have issues, and at least once a year, my employer wants me and expects me to check in, and I pay an incentive for that visit, just like I would a wellness visit with a physician. And so those are some of the changes that employers could make to start moving the needle along these lines. Well, it's a, it's a great moment, I think, for employers to really step up and, you know, the flexibility and benefit design and, you know, their proximity to the ones that they cover, you know, the 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 health of their business. It all depends on transformation. And, you know, it's, it's a moment of optimism. And, you know, as I was thinking about how to wrap up our conversation, I did want to end on, you know, something optimistic. You know, when I uh, engaged you uh, in the beginning of our conversation, I mean, we, we were talking about some pretty grim statistics on life expectancy you know we, we talked about uh health inequities and you know i mean they, they these um headwinds they seem really insurmountable i mean uh if you just look at it at face value i mean but you know I, there is a recognition now i mean you know our broken healthcare system of treating illness and sending people back to the same environment that made them sick in the first place is not a good strategy and you know the economics are, are there you know it's an imperative that we address you know this excessive spending uh, looming medicare insolvencies upon us you know 90% of all health spending is for conditions rooted in unhealthy lifestyle choices there's a moral imperative to you know to this as well which you know i i think uh is which i'm hopeful that you know that'll elevate the national consciousness towards lifestyle medicine so you know dr sherney as we wrap up our conversation today you know, I, I just, you know, given all these challenging statistics and, and headwinds, you know, like we, we have to have this shift uh, towards lifestyle medicine. And I wanted to see if you could just provide us maybe with some parting thoughts about, you know, how lifestyle medicine and Western medicine can be more synergistically integrated to improve overall health and well-being. I mean, are you personally optimistic in our future? Uh, do, do you think we're going to get there? I do. I do. And that's why I 
do what I do. I'm really trying to bring the Venn diagram of lifestyle medicine and blue zones together. You mentioned that, you know, we have these situations where we put people back into an environment that's not supportive. And so if you think about what a lifestyle medicine doctor does to kind of get people, you know, on the, on track, and then we put them back into an environment that's not healthy, that doesn't work. We wouldn't do it in any other area. We, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, you know, send an alcoholic to, to AA and then let them go work in a bar. It just doesn't make any sense. So the way that the Venn diagram would work is that you have lifestyle medicine, primary care folks working on one end, and then you put them into an more and more blue zone environments, whether it's a full transformation project, which is a whole community project, or whether it's a microcosm of a blue zone, such as at a single employer or a single school campus, those kinds of things. And now you are able to support that individual after they've made these changes. And so that's what makes me hopeful. And I'm also working in Blue Zones is as well on the policy fronts that we mentioned in terms of changing reimbursement and um, ideas around, you know, what we, we do together and collaborate on. Um, also policies around that at the city level and the county level. So that makes me optimistic. And I also, what makes me optimistic is that food is medicine. Uh, is more than a buzzword. People are actually seeing it and they're starting to see the results. Uh, and people are starting to realize that it's not how much food you put in your belly. It's the kind of food that can make the difference. Well, I can't think of a better way to end our conversation. Dr. Sherney, I am so grateful that you uh, are spending time with us and engaging our our, our listeners and, and really doing the great work to advance uh, lifestyle medicine and this blue zone transformation that we could have in our country. And, you know, I, I, I share in your optimism. I, I think we'll finally get there. I mean, we understand the root causes. Now we just have to, you know, find the way to, to implement these solutions, you know, through policy and, and through a national consciousness. So again, you know, thank you so much for spending time with us this week. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, I love what you do. Keep it up. Oh, thank you, my friend. <laughs>